Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. I started somewhere and then the more I looked, the more interesting it got. And there were so many sub-questions that arose as I was doing the research. How do you do this? How do you do that? That in the end, I just had to write a book about it. This is not something that could be dealt with in a series of academic papers. It's uh, just like walking around an extremely interesting aquarium and you think, yes, you do want to look at it from, 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 from all sides. Because there's so many things that could possibly go wrong. Every time I identified something where there was a problem or a potential problem, I was told, oh, yes, but so-and-so will solve that problem and he's the best in the field. And, yeah, if you, if you, if you need to get $2 million in small banknotes into Kenya without the Kenyan Central Bank knowing about it or it being confiscated at customs, Years ago, to guy. I thought it was just so fascinating that amount of information, all these problem solvers who are connected with each other. Every point at which these cases could go wrong, somebody had located that I can solve this problem for you for a price, but that price will be well worth it because, in the end, it's about saving a human being. Every exchange situation contains a risk of predation, cheating and unfulfilled promises. The startling words of Agnes Shortland from her fascinating new book Kidnap, Inside the Ransom Business, published by Oxford University Press. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. How big is the ransom business and why are most transnational kidnaps peacefully resolved? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with German researcher and writer Anja Shortland, whose new book, Kidnap, Inside the Ransom Business, has just been published by Oxford University Press, where Anja states... Most kidnapping problems occur in states where governments are challenged by insurgencies and organised crime. Anya goes on to argue media coverage has a different bias. There is also self-censorship. It would be unwise for a victim's family to advertise that they'd paid a substantial ransom for the safe return of a loved one. So how organised is the market for hostages and would people be safer if insurance did not exist? Okay, I'm Anya Shortland. I'm a reader in political economy at King's College London. And I'm interested in institutional economics, private governance, and I'm particularly interested in the world's trickiest markets, how people trade hostages, hijack ships, fine art, um, antiquities, and how people live and trade and invest in countries where the state is weak or the state is even non-existent are making for very complex and hostile territories. And I've just published a book, Kidnap Inside the Ransom Business, which looks at the market for hostages 
in great detail. Really well done on the book, Anya. I have to say it was a hugely informative read. Very uncomfortable in some parts, but uh, deeply interesting in other parts. I think how you sketch out all your case studies and all your insider information all uh, mingled together with the research was so, so interesting. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. How complex is a ransom business? And is it fair to say that it's still today something of a puzzle? Well, I thought it was an amazing puzzle for an economist to start with. If you look at the media portrayal of kidnap for ransom, you get the impression that it's extremely violent, that it almost always goes wrong, and that it's super profitable for the kidnappers if it goes right. So you get these million-dollar ransoms being splashed out. You think, well, how does that actually work? Is that really the right picture that we have of kidnap for ransom. Um, Because if that was the right picture of kidnap for ransom, then we shouldn't see quite so many companies investing and trading and mining and researching and reporting from places where kidnap is common and where you can't rely on the police and the state to protect you. So these companies and NGOs all work in these complex and hostile territories and have a duty of care, then maybe there is more to kidnapping than what we read in the media. And then you also find that it's insurable. And insurability means that it must be a market that's relatively stable, that's predictable, and that can't be super profitable because if it was super profitable, then we'd see too much of it for it to be insurable. So those were the puzzles that I started with. The other big puzzle is how could kidnap for ransom ever go right? Usually when we trade with someone, we choose a trading partner. With kidnap for ransom, it's a random thing. Somebody kidnaps your beloved, your treasure, and you're forced into a trading relationship with them. You know nothing of them. You've no reason to trust them. You have to find a price for something that a human being, and that's extremely difficult. I mean, there's a very large range of prices that might be possible. How do you fix on one? How do you make a payment? How do you extract the hostage? Um, Why would they release the hostage after receiving payment, given that the hostage might be troublesome as a future potential witness? So if you think of it as a chain of things that have to go right, and you keep in mind Murphy's Law, that everything that can go wrong will go wrong, and you think this this shouldn't really work at all, ever. From reading through your book, Kidnap, it seems that this business is fairly organised, is it? Indeed. So that is the answer to that puzzling question of how do these firms um, fulfill their duty of care towards their employees, that actually kidnap is an extremely well-ordered business. And what we see in the media is a very biased view of the cases that have gone wrong. The large majority of kidnap for ransom cases are resolved extremely discreetly extremely non-violently, and almost always positively. So as a ballpark figure, 97.5% of hostages come back alive. Um, Specifically, if we're talking about 
criminal kidnap for ransom that is handled by companies that are associated with kidnap for ransom insurance. I'm just wondering, Anya, do you think that, you know, it could be argued now to a degree that ransom insurance encourages kidnapping? Or do you think that's a bit reductive and a bit simplistic? Like, would people be safer if insurance did not exist? Kidnap for ransom insurance is a rather odd product, unlike other insurance products. So if you're buying kidnap for ransom insurance, it comes with a whole raft of advice sometimes extremely hands-on advice on how to avoid being kidnapped. So would people be safer without this advice? Most definitely not. The second thing that Kidnap for Ransom Insurance does is it gives the victims access to extremely experienced people who know how to commercially resolve Kidnap for Ransom cases. So their role is to give the families advice on how to to resolve a kidnapping incident such a way that the hostage is kept safe, but also that the case doesn't settle for so much money that every criminal in the area thinks that kidnapping is the best thing to do. So on average... In expectation, a kidnapper does not make a super normal profit from kidnapping an expatriate. And that way, it does not incentivize kidnapping. It keeps people safe. It keeps the hostage themselves safe, which is absolutely crucial. The hostage is at the, at the heart of this, of this consultancy business. But it's also about not putting a bullseye target on everyone else who looks a bit like the first hostage. I'm just wondering how you went about the research. I know you argue somewhere in the book that, you know, official kidnap statistics are patchy and biased and, you know, that abductions are only reported if there's a local police presence and that within that, that if the um, police officers are not suspected of being complicit in the kidnapping. So you had to get the industry to talk to you and all the different layers and, and webs behind that industry. So how did you go about that? Because I imagine it was pretty tricky, was it? It was tricky, but it wasn't impossible, obviously. My way into the, this conversation, and it's been a very, very long conversation. It's been five years that we've been talking to kidnap to the experts. My way in was Somali piracy. The Somali piracy, it was common knowledge that boats had been hijacked for ransom. Uh, We could find out um, about the ransom negotiations, ongoing ransom negotiations. We could find out a little bit about the ransom. And what I found so fascinating about Somali piracy was that there were these very strong norms of of nonviolence that the ship owners and the navies and the pirates all came to an understanding that commercial resolution was was the best way of resolving these cases. That's so interesting. So essentially what you're saying there was there was these unspoken norms and protocols in place for the pirates to kind of go about their daily work, if you will. Exactly. And there were people who were disciplining the pirates and 
I was interested in who that was. So on the one hand, one of my puzzles, my research is always puzzle-driven. One of my puzzles, how can you tie a multi-million dollar asset such as a hijacked super tanker up in front of the Somali coast, which is supposedly anarchic, and let it sit there for 18 months and nobody touches it? That's the puzzle, isn't it? So who makes sure that that is the case? Who, who organizes that from the Somali side? Because only if you organize that is it in the interest of the ship owner to go down the commercial route of resolving this with a ransom. And yeah, I was interested in, in who makes that happen, how the negotiators on both sides try and shift the price in their favor. And, and you'd think, well, maybe they'd gain a lot from starting to maltreat hostages, but you don't see that. You see threats, but they stop short of actually deliberately inflicting harm on the hostages. And then you, you find these pirate contracts as well, where they say, no, you can't harm hostages. If you harm the hostage, then you'd be shot and thrown to the shark. So I'm interested in order. How do you incentivize people to run this trade as smoothly in the circumstances? I'm not saying it's pleasant or anything, but in the circumstances, it's surprisingly nonviolent. And having talked about pirate cases for many, many years, eventually I couldn't get any further because you run into problems of um, the, the, the consultants can't talk about specific cases that would give away the, um, the identity of their customers. So by broadening out into kidnap for ransom in general, we could anonymize the issue again and talk about negotiations. You describe the best negotiators as outstanding problem solvers and lateral thinkers. And I thought that was very interesting. And I suppose when you think of what they have to do, um, the, you know, they need to think creatively and they need to have be very pragmatic. But I presume also in terms of communication skills and, you know, that kind of um, sense of empathy, they have to have a lot of kind of a lot of competencies in the whole psychological field, do they? The job of the crisis responder is absolutely amazing. So if your treasure is taken and you're forced into a trade and a negotiation with a criminal enterprise, you will have no experience of this. And it will just be an absolute nightmare for you. So what the insurer offers you is, is a crisis response consultant who, who will help you through this absolutely dreadful period of your life. The crisis responders job is to structure the negotiation in such a way that the kidnappers realize very quickly that there isn't very much to get from this particular hostage. So it's about managing the expectations of the kidnapper. But the crisis responders themselves will not be in evidence themselves. So the Negotiation will be conducted by the family or by the firm, whoever takes responsibility for the hostage. So it's about helping the family to find the front and deal with all the threats and all the horrible things that they will experience during these phone calls to stick firmly to a price that will result in the hostage 
being released in a minimum amount of time and at a price that doesn't incentivize further kidnappings. And it's a really tough job because they can't run the negotiations. They have to facilitate other people running that negotiation. And of course, then there is also a problem that the family might think, is he telling us this because it's in the interest of the hostage? Or is it because it's in the interest of the insurer? So there is also often this unspoken suspicion about whose side the consultant is on, and they have to manage that as well. In my book, I have a whole chapter about a negotiation over a pirate ship, a pirated ship, where all of these uh, issues and problems are worked through. But yeah, so the crisis responder has to well, think on their feet because they are in a negotiation with a criminal outfit, but they also need to keep the trust of the family and help them to achieve the best possible outcome for the hostage. And then on a very basic level, when you think about trying to manage the anxiety and fears of family members and when they're thrown with this kind of question on how they put a price for their son or daughter or brother or sister or their cousin or whoever it is, like that's such a surreal and crazy question to pitch up to anybody, you know. Um, yet they have to be measured, problem solved, and that they have to kind of treat it like in a professional way. It's, it's just so extraordinary, isn't it? It is absolutely extraordinary, and I've spoken to many of these negotiators, but what is behind them is this confidence that they've already done it dozens, if not more than 100 times, and they have never lost a hostage. So they are actually very calming as a presence. they, They know what they're doing. They've done it before. They know what delivers the results, and it's about not losing your nerve and not letting the kidnapper take charge of the negotiation and not letting the kidnapper threaten you into suddenly mobilising huge resources. You mentioned earlier about, you know, that um, I think it's somewhere around close to 90% of um, most hostage situations are, you know, it comes to a peaceful resolution and that, you know, um, victims are successfully ransomed. Um, But I suppose when you think it all through, um, you can't measure up the psychological damage that the family go through as well as the uh, person who has been um, kidnapped. So did you talk to many family members or those who um, fell uh, um, were kidnapped? So the the figure, if you're you're insured for kidnapped for ransom, is 97.5% come home alive. And very, very few hostages are killed. And some just die of pre-existing medical conditions. So given how complex a trade is, uh, that success rate to me was just utterly amazing. Does that suggest that the market is to a degree self-governing or is that stretching it a bit? That's, That's what my book is about, that governance system. What orders the market to that point? where almost everybody comes home. Can I ask you, Anya, you mentioned a very interesting company in um, in the book. Um, they're called Control Risks. They seem to be one of the key players in, in, in I suppose, the whole um, professionalised kind of ransom negotiations uh, and all of that. They seem to be very uh, sophisticated operators. Yes, it's extremely interesting, the history of this company. So 
Kidnap for ransom insurance has existed for a long time, since the 1930s. And the idea was that families would pretty much be left to get on by themselves when negotiating and uh, the, the ransom, delivering the ransom and getting the hostage back. And then the insurance company would, um, would reimburse them for the ransom afterwards. What they found very quickly was that families then were extremely soft in their negotiation tactics and um, settled for very high ransoms, setting off kidnapping hotspots all over the place. And it got to the point where kidnap for ransom wasn't really insurable anymore. And then in the 1970s, there were a number of people who got together and said, look, this, is, this product isn't working. And a company called Control Risks was formed, and they said, we can get this market back to the point where we'll be insurable if we take charge of the ransom negotiations, if we make sure that whoever negotiates puts resistance against the kidnappers. Kidnappers should not be able to make half a million in an afternoon or a million in a week. So Control Risks was the first company that said, look, let's put the experts in there to help firms and families negotiate ransoms that doesn't create more and more kidnappings, but instead um, stops kidnappers from making profits and therefore this being, being, being an attractive uh, criminal business. Books with Susan Cowell. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with German researcher and writer Anya Shortland, whose new book, Kidnap, Inside the Ransom Business, has just been published by Oxford University Press. 
I asked Anya about Lloyds in London and her research into their sophisticated underwriters teams and how it all works. Lloyds is an insurance market. So what happens is at Lloyds is that there are a number of syndicates and each syndicate decides what kind of risks it wants to insure. And there are only about 20 syndicates in Lloyds that insure kidnap for ransom. So it's a very small group of syndicates, a very small group of underwriters who all sit within shouting distance of each other in one room. And it gives these underwriters the possibility, it facilitates information exchange. So we talked earlier on about what is it that disciplines kidnappers. Well, what disciplines kidnappers is that they have to build reputations. For a kidnapper to behave well today only makes sense if that helps them to make more profits in the future. It's always in their interest to try and get a little bit more money out of the current hostage or not release the current hostage. It's only the shadow of the future, the fact that that if, if they behave badly with this hostage, then the chances are that the next hostage is not going to be is not going to be paid for with a ransom, but that the police is going to come in instead. Yeah, so kidnappers only behave because they need to guard a reputation. But we don't have a rate my kidnapper app. So that reputation, that information about a kidnapper's reputation needs to be bundled somewhere. People need to know who the reasonable counterparties are within the criminal underworld. So you need to have a highly concentrated market where people can exchange that kind of information very discreetly, very reliably. And that's what this private governance system facilitates, um, both through Lloyd's, through the underwriting room, but also through a very tight-knit group of crisis responders and security consultants who, who, who all know each other and who can exchange that information. I'm just wondering, though, that, you know, like, say, for example, yourself, if you knew your university, just say for laughs, had taken out um, kidnap insurance on you or, you know, obviously it wouldn't happen in a university situation or we would be quite surprised if it did. But clearly, you know, top um, banking um, executives, top technology executives, logistics um, um, and so on. And, you know, senior UN staff in some developing countries. I just I just wonder, you know, if, when, if they know that they have kidnap insurance, you know, is that reassuring? Maybe. But then it also presents a kind of um, a psychological game that they have to play because they have to live and work through that. And the actuary has done his work and, and he or she has said you are at risk. So that must be a very unusual situation for both the company to be in as well as the consultant to be in. One of the conditions of kidnap insurance is that the insured person doesn't know that they're insured. And if they know they're insured and behave as if they're insured, their insurance contract is invalidated. So the plan is you don't know that you're insured, which means that when you are kidnapped, you're not going to tell your kidnapper to ring your employer, but you tell them to ring your family. 
can we talk about when uh, kidnaps go wrong? And, you know, it's I can only imagine it must have been a very uncomfortable part of the research. But, um, you know, um, it is a fact, even if it's a very, um, you know, low percentage. You argue that dead bodies are difficult to sell and you pitch up an extraordinary question. You, you ask, is that a, you know, bad luck or a sign of governance failure? Well, I'm just wondering, how do you explain it all? The question for me was, is there a pattern to what kidnaps go wrong and what kidnaps generally get resolved commercially and peacefully. And the interesting thing was that if you're insured for a kidnap for ransom, then almost everybody comes home alive. If you're uh, a local and you're kidnapped by a local criminal enterprise, the odds are not quite so good, but about 90% of people come home alive. So there still seems to be some order, but it's not as good as the order that I describe in my book about the system that is run um, uh, through, 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 through Lloyd's Kidnap for Ransom Insurance. So the ones that go wrong and the ones that we're most aware of because they get the media coverage are uh, what we call the terrorist kidnap for ransom where the organization on the other side is on the UN list of terrorist organizations. So I was wondering whether that is because these political kidnap are, are a completely different beast or whether that was because there was a lack of order, there was a le- lack of a mechanism for facilitating an orderly exchange, a lack of a system that creates norms of nonviolence and a lack of a system that creates ransom discipline. And that's exactly what I found, that bureaucrats and politicians negotiate ransoms under a completely different system of incentives from crisis responders and private sector actors. And it is that that makes these kidnaps so problematic. As I was progressing through your book, Anya, I, you know, I thought to myself, God, there's so much happening in the world that we absolutely don't have a clue on. And then when you pick up your book and you look at the whole ransom business and what happens in your, if you can say, a typical uh, kidnap and all the presumptions that we have. And actually the facts are it's actually quite um, it's not ordinary in one way, but it's kind of almost normalised in terms of the environment of it and accepted protocols. And it got me thinking, well, if that is, if, if we look at markets and if we look at kind of uh, the world from the lens of the ransom business and what we know or what we think we know, and if you broaden that out, there are so many different, um, I suppose, networks and businesses and markets within the world that we're completely clueless on. So I can imagine after writing a book like this, it possibly opened up the field of question enormously, did it? Absolutely. Yes, it was. I started somewhere and then the more I looked, the more interesting it got. And there were so many sub-questions that arose as I was doing the research. How do you do this? How do you do that? That in the end, I just had to write a book about it. This is not not something that could be dealt with in a series of uh, academic papers. It's a... yeah, just like walking around an extremely interesting aquarium, and you think, yes, you do want to look at it from 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 all sides, because there's so many things that could possibly go wrong. And every time I identified something where there was a problem or a potential problem, I was told, oh yes, 
but so-and-so will solve that problem and he's the best in the field. And, yeah, if you, if you, if you need to get $2 million in small banknotes into Kenya without the Kenyan Central Bank knowing about it or it being confiscated at customs, here's a go-to guy. I thought it was just so fascinating that amount of information or these problem solvers who are connected with each other, every point at which these cases could go wrong, somebody had located that I can solve this problem for you for a price, but that price will be well worth it because in the end, it's about saving a human being. I found your research into uh, FARC in Colombia uh, so interesting and I've been to Colombia twice and I love the country but how you present um, some of the case studies and you know the information on the ground and what happens is uh, is so interesting. I might actually get you if you wouldn't mind Anya to um, maybe read one of your case studies because you know they really add texture to the book and um, you know no longer is something out there it just becomes something I suppose extraordinarily ordinary in another way. Yes this is an interesting one. Um, this is a local on local kidnap. So I've put this case study into the book because it really opened my eyes as regards how local people deal with the threat of kidnapping and kidnapping and why kidnapping occurs in the first place. But then also knowing that locals have this way of normalizing kidnappings makes it easier to understand how foreign consultants can help Western companies to deal with this kind of threat. So, yes, so this is uh, what uh, a friend told me. I had to bring machinery to a remote town, but the road was controlled by the FARC. I knew that if the FARC stopped me on the way, I would have to pay a $2,000 tax. I didn't want to do this, so we waited for a few days until a procession in honour of the Virgin Mary used the road. We hired a float, hid the goods, and put a band on top. They played beautifully, and nobody thought of stopping us. I was so pleased. But when I arrived in the town, I realised that my friend had been kidnapped on the way. I drove after my friend immediately, taking the $2,000 with me. Local people told me the way to the fart camp in the forest. I was taken to an accountant to make the contract. The accountant was in a tent with a satellite phone and two computers. He consulted his database and demanded a $10,000 fine. He knew everything about my company. I was told to deliver the fine in small notes, some painkillers and a pair of prescription glasses to an out-of-the-way farm in a few days' time. The accountant asked me for a tip, and I got $100 out from the huge bundle of peso notes in my pocket. The FARC said that my friend's car would be required for FARC business for a little while. My friend and I left immediately and I raised the ransom in the next city as the local bank did not have enough cash. The bag with the ransom was large and heavy, and an army helicopter helped me to deliver it. We hadn't expected to see my friend's car again, but it was found abandoned nearby a few days later. I never reported this to the police, and from then on the mayor told me exactly how much the FARC wanted, and I paid straight away. So to what extent then is that, I suppose, kind of, uh, you know, a security tax protection payments because it's kind of, you know, a bit blurry, isn't it? What this story made me realise is that kidnapping is disequilibrium behaviour. So if I know that there is somebody who could kidnap me or a member of my family, then I 
rather pay them not to do that. So that's what happens in a lot of countries in the world where you can't rely on the police to keep you safe. You, you pay your pizza, your vacuna, whatever it takes or whatever it's called, the Dame Guild, to make sure that the local rebels or mafia or whatever you want to call them um, don't kick in your shop windows, don't kidnap you, etc. So you prevent kidnaps by paying the right person the right amount of money in the right way. And in a local-on-local -local scenario, that broadly works. So kidnapping only happens if you don't know who to pay, you don't know whether to pay, you don't know how much to pay, and you don't know how to pay. Only then is, is it worthwhile to kidnap somebody to clarify all of these information problems. Um, because if somebody gets kidnapped, you know you're going to kidnap, you're going to pay the kidnapper. And I suppose it's, you know, very different when you're coming at, let's say, from a Eurocentric perspective, relatively stable environments where there is kind of um, the rule of laws is, is strong and all the rest. But if you're in countries where, you know, they're dominated by, you know, rebels or cartels or mafias or whatever term you want to throw at them, um, you would have a completely different psychology of all of this. And I suppose you'd have to be kind of, I suppose, flexible, pragmatic and realistic about the day to day running of whether it's your business or activity and you'd have to work with the systems on the ground. Absolutely right. When, when, whenever you move into, into countries where, where the state is weak, you, you have to rely on the protection of the local community. And that local community has to be broadly happy with your presence there. And if you're a tourist, that means staying at a hotel and spending money. But if you're a firm... It also means getting the community on your side. And unfortunately, in some circumstances, the demands of the community are, are conveyed through rebel groups. Or you have criminal organizations that, to some extent, have replaced the services that the state doesn't deliver, i.e. provide protection to the local community. And they also want to provide protection to the firms that are locating in the territory. and. It's a really difficult question for a firm to say, well, who do we pay and how do we pay them? And how do we pay them in such a way that it doesn't look corrupt? And I've done a lot of training with the United Nations within uh, their different organisations. And one of the first things they do when uh, they take you on is you need to do um, security um, um, security awareness training. And um, I did some terrific stuff over in Sweden and in Denmark. But I can remember going down to the Curra camp, our main army camp um, in County Kildare. And they had us running through the Curra in the lashing rain uh, barefoot as we did, um, I suppose, best described as um, hostage scenario situations and how to conduct uh, yourself if you are taken hostage and you know we went you know they put it through conditions it was very cold as I said it was very wet with no shoes on we were blindfolded you know and it was intimidating and all the rest but it was actually I learned a lot um, while doing it but when I was thinking back to that training that I did and then when you think about you know the UN resolution on ransom payments um, you know there's, there's pros and cons related to that and I can see where they're going with it. And, you know, different governments, the British administration, the American uh, political leadership have certain views on ransom payments. But I'm just wondering, from your kind of research and from your professional experience in the arena, do you think that um, it's serving its purpose? So the UN resolutions 
only apply to terrorists kidnapped for ransom. So if somebody is kidnapped by a terrorist organization, then by international law, it's prohibited to facilitate the payment of a ransom, of a monetary ransom. And it's also prohibiting insurers from getting involved in the negotiation of a ransom. So all that infrastructure that I look at in my book is sidelined and they cannot do anything. That means that the buck stops with the government of the hostage because governments can do whatever they like. There is no process within the UN to punish a government that pays a ransom. So then you get different attitudes from different governments. Some governments say we will never pay a ransom. Most of them will on occasion come to some sort of arrangement with the kidnappers anyway. Some of them will do so rarely, like the UK and the US, and some of them unfortunately do so quite regularly. The problem with governments doing this is that they tend it's very difficult for a government to demonstrate a budget constraint. If you've got a family negotiating it's very clear that at some stage when the house is sold and the car is sold and all the credit cards maxed out, that there is a limit. But for the German government, it's not really clear whether that limit would be 2 million or 5 million or 12 million or 18 million or 25 million. You don't know, do you? So that makes it very attractive for the kidnappers to really probe how much money there is. And one way of probing how much the German government would be willing to spend on a hostage would be to start killing hostages. Presumably, not the German ones, they're likely to sell for a lot of money, but maybe a British hostage or an American hostage. So you get this really horrible scenario where some countries pay ransoms and pay massive ransoms being put under pressure by terrorist organizations who kill and maltreat other hostages. So I think the system is, is counterproductive because the idea was to limit the amount of uh, funding that goes to terrorists, but in fact, it allows the terrorists to drive up the ransoms for hostages of some nationalities. So last question for you, Anya. Um, I'm just wondering, what is your hope with the book? Because it's a very challenging read. It's a very interesting read. It's very dark in parts. But I suppose it's an uh, it's it's a, such an important topic to discuss and it's a reality for people when they're working in hostile environments or challenging uh, environments that, you know, there are issues related to security and to kidnap. But I presume maybe somewhere in, in, in your hopes for the book that you want to create a conversation and that is presumably with not just policymakers but for companies and individuals who are working in high-risk environments or have staff or whatever. Is that it? What's the hope? I was extremely impressed with this private governance system, with the ingenuity of private agents to create structures to make this immensely tricky market work as well as it does and in such a way as to not create incentive to massively increase the business of kidnappers. So it is a testimony to the power of private governance. 
And really the gut reaction of people when they're faced with a problem is to say, oh, well, governments need to sort this out. This is something where my government should be, my government should be, should be rescuing hostages. And my book questions that and say, well, actually, governments are not in a particularly good place to do that. And if they start interfering with a private governance system, if they start taking over, if they start using UN resolutions to sideline the experts, that's actually really dangerous. That really puts people into the sights of criminal groups and terrorists. And that makes it more more difficult for people to, to do research or reporting or deliver aid or trade with very poor countries. So, yes, I'm hoping that people will think more about when governments can actually help them and when you can leave it to the private sector. There is a lot of distrust and suspicion of insurers and what insurance companies do and what their motives are. But on this particular issue, I've really found that that suspicion that somehow insurers are in cahoots with kidnappers, that, that really doesn't this is really not borne out by my research. It's not really not borne out by the data. So it's just been fascinating to research, but I think it should also be fascinating to read. I set a fire to the moon shade Yeah, just shadows in the cascade of history Faded lower than your gaze The sky I said our bodies on my lonely shore This heavy whisper makes me more scared than anything I was loved and now they lost love I know they'll never find us way out of some madness I feel free and tired For what keeps with me miles apart In life We saw Cast it all out into the light 
That was Anya Shortland from King's College, London. Kidnap Inside the Ransom Business is published by Oxford University Press and retails for in around 20 euros in hardback. Now, I have to say hats off to Anya. This is one fascinating read. It's superbly written and excellently researched. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. OK, all that's left for me to do is to say thank you for listening and a big shout out to the lovely Chris Bent on Sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to close tonight's broadcast with the insightful words of Anya Shortland from Kidnap. These markets only work because there is a high degree of market concentration and crucial information is withheld from key market participants. Interesting words indeed. Good night.